Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to ICC. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to welcome you to uh, worship with us this morning. Uh, This is the day in ICC where uh, people who intend to show up for the first service actually show up to the second because they don't know about the time change. But um, anyway, it's the one day of this uh, spring that the second service might outnumber the first service. We'll just see. But I'm grateful for you brave early birds this morning. Uh, some of you might have woken up to your alarm. You didn't even know it was daylight saving times day. You just didn't feel very good. <laughs> you were like, really? It's over? Um, but uh, we're glad you're here. Um, if you've got your Bibles this morning, if you could get them open to the Gospel of Matthew, this morning we are going to be um, continuing our series, Jesus Messiah, as we study uh, the Gospel of Matthew together. We've been walking through this book. Matthew, of course, written by um, the disciple, the follower of Jesus, Matthew, um, who was formerly tax collector, whose life had been transformed uh, in his own relationship with Jesus. He had come to know him as Savior and as the Messiah. And when we talk about Messiah, what we're talking about is the one who is the fulfillment of all of God's promise, um, the one who has come to bring you back into right relationship with God and the one who can fulfill the deepest parts of you. And uh, Matthew writes um, with a clear desire for you to know Jesus and for you uh, to fall in love with him and to live your life in relationship with him. And so today I'm going to pray and we're going to open God's word together as... um, We talked this morning, the title of today's message is Costly Discipleship, Following the Messiah. If you've got your Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19 and 20. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, 
but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for a day, he sent them into his royal vineyard. 
And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, and he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, "We, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup But to sit at the right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's Word. This morning, we are talking about costly discipleship, following the Messiah. I want to go and give you our core truth for the day, and I don't know if this will be for your excitement or maybe not, but the only thing that's going to be on the screen today for your note-taking is our core truth. It does not mean you should not take notes in other ways today. Um, I'll explain that in just a second, but I just wanted to go ahead and tell you that this is all in terms of notes that are going to be on the screens today. Our core truth is this. Jesus demands and deserves for all who follow him to love him supremely. Jesus demands and he deserves for all people who follow him to love him supremely. I love uh, these chapters of Scripture. I love God's Word. I hope you love God's Word. Um, God's Word is so good. And uh, I just pray that you treasure God's Word and that you spend time in it, not just here on Sundays, but every day. Um, we have such an incredible opportunity to get to know the true and living God when we just open His Word and allow Him to speak to us. But in these chapters, um, we get challenged. I get challenged uh, as your pastor. I, I have been challenged in the weeks leading up to preparing for this. One of the benefits of teaching God's Word, if you ever have an opportunity to disciple or teach another, is it will always grow you more than it grows anybody else that you serve. And... Um, we are challenged as we read these chapters by Jesus. We are challenged because what we see is that um, Jesus doesn't just want like, us to add him in to our life as, an, as a nice supplement to all the wonderful things that we already have going on. Um, Jesus demands that if he is truly going to be our Savior, then he is also going to be our Lord. He is going to be our everything. And he challenges us to realize um, just how, how extreme of a commitment that he desires from us to really yield to him our whole heart and our whole life uh, to love him supremely uh, with our all. Over and over in these chapters, <laughs> did y'all hear the disciples? They keep listening to Jesus and they're going, who can do that? Who could do this? How is it possible Y'all hear that over and over? I mean, as he talks about um, God's design for marriage, they're going, it's better not to marry. How in the world could we live like this? And he doesn't lessen God's standard. He actually says, well, 
if you can't be married and live in God's design, then it's better for you just to choose not to be married. Going on describing that some people have made themselves eunuchs. The illustration there is that some people have chosen for themselves not to enter into something if they can't keep God's desires and design in it. He talks about the same as it relates to money, and he talks about the same as it relates to the cost of following him and what it looks like to to really serve him, to seek him, the cost of that. And he doesn't let up. As people push back and they're going, for real? He goes, for real. For real. It reminds us of what we studied earlier in Matthew. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. But blessed are those who follow Jesus on that path, for their reward is life that will never end. Discipleship. The call to follow Jesus is a costly call, but it yields great, great reward, namely that you get Jesus himself. I want to focus in on the story of the rich young ruler, starting in verse 16. And the reason that I have chosen to keep today simple is because... I think that while there's a very simple message today, it is very deep, and it requires of us that we deal honestly um, with what God is speaking. Three, all three of the first Gospels uh, record this event, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we see this guy, verse 16, says, behold, a man came up to him. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this is a, a rich man, and we see this in Jesus' interaction with him. He is a man who is a leader, most likely a leader of uh, his synagogue, and he's probably, um, yeah, he's young. He's a guy who, like many of you, has got a lot of potential and a bright future ahead of him. And he comes to Jesus, which I love. One of the things I love about our church and I love about uh, working in our community is I love that people honestly seek Jesus. And that may be you. Um, I know that for many in our church, um, you, there are many people here who are genuinely seeking and exploring who is this Jesus and what does it really look like to have a relationship with him, and you're hungry to really understand him and to really figure out um, some of these big questions that you have about who he is and, and, and life itself and what it looks like that he is calling us toward. And this guy's the same. I mean, he's very sincere, it seems, in his coming to Jesus. And he seems to be genuinely asking questions and genuinely listening. And he says to him, Look at his question there in verse 16. Teacher, uh, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, it's interesting. This guy's coming thinking. I would describe this as like a works-based mentality. 
And many people, before relationship with Christ, and many of us, even after relationship with Christ, can fall into this trap, where we're thinking, what is it that God wants me to do in order to get something from Him, right? So I have this desire for eternal life, which is a whole other conversation. One of the things I love about this guy is that this guy is searching for something more. Um, I know in my own testimony, um, this, this past week I had an opportunity to uh, be a part of a training uh, for evangelism, ways to share the gospel, and we're going to be working in the next few months of trying to provide some more training for us all as a church. But one of the things that I was challenged to do by the guy that uh, was helping to train me was he said, I want you to come up with two word testimony of your life before Christ. And I'm like, dang, two words. Um, and I was sitting there penciling out a bunch of things on the paper, trying to kind of figure out what it was. And without even connecting it to the story, I was literally had just disconnected from preparation for this Sunday and was just in the midst of this training. The two words that I wrote down were empty and searching. Empty and searching. And I don't know two better words to describe where I truly was before I came to know Jesus. But I know those two words were the words that most resonate with where I was truly in that time. You would have looked at me from the outside and gone, dang, he's living in a condo downtown Atlanta. Cool. He's got dates with girls. He eats at nice restaurants. I was driving a Ford Taurus, so I can't say that was cool. He got a job in a corporation right out of college. He's moving up the leadership ladder. He got a salary, yo, right? I mean, I'm, not that people actually talk like this. I'm just trying to make myself <laughs> cooler. Than, but you would have looked at me perhaps from the outside. I look at you from the outside. And many of you, I'm like, man, you've got it going on. Like, things, things look good. And for this guy, I'm sure from the outside, people who knew him would be like, he's got it going on. He's a leader. He's rich. He's young. He's influential. He's got it going on. But if, but if you only had known my heart, and I never talked about it, but now I look back and I go, yeah, those two words, I was empty, empty, surrounded with stuff, opportunity, worldly success, but on the inside, empty, discontent. Pleasure for a moment, but at the end of the day, head on the pillow, deeply frustrated, deeply discontent, and searching. So much of the stuff that I had filled my life with was, was an attempt to try to find contentment, to try to find the answer, purpose, satisfaction, true joy in life. Empty and searching. I see this here in the young man. He's got it going on, but he's still seeking Jesus, going, hey, um, could you tell me about this eternal life thing? Could you tell me about something more? What must I do for that? And for many of us, you need to listen to those, those stirrings in your heart for more because they are meant to lead you to Jesus. They are meant to show you that life is more than just money, 
more than your career, more than your relationships, more than your worldly safety or success. Life is more. Now, the challenge with this guy is as he gets to Jesus, while he's searching, probably from a place of of emptiness we know, he's thinking about it the wrong way. Because he's thinking, what must I do? There's something that I need to do to, to, to get that that I'm missing. Now, Jesus, interesting, verse 17, responds to him and he says, oh, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one, <laughs> there's only one who is good. This is kind of weird. Um, when I lived in West Africa among the Maninka people, uh, when I was serving there as a missionary, many Muslims would come up to me with this verse and they would use, try to use this to prove that Jesus is saying that he is not God. There's only one who is good, and it's God. And they would use this to say that, see, Jesus isn't pointing that he's not God. Only God is good. But actually, what he's doing, he's not saying that he's not God. We have a whole Bible (laughs) filled with teaching that help us to know that he is God. But in this moment, what he's challenging is, do you know, young man, who you're talking to? Why are you calling me good? Do you recognize that I am God? There's only one who is good. And yes, it is Jesus. It is God. But he's, he's forcing the young man to recognize. Here's why this is important. Because when we come to Jesus, if we come to him as just another religious teacher who we can choose to accept or not, another philosopher, another in uh, somebody who's just giving out in, uh, general instruction, if we come to him and we're just coming to him as one other in a list of others that we're listening to, then we're not going to be forced to truly listen to what he says as truth and to be forced to reckon with it in our own lives. What he's doing is he's forcing that young man to recognize that he's not just another religious teacher. He is God. So when we come to Jesus with questions, we got to listen to him as the truth teller, and we've got to obey him as God. What we do with the instructions of Jesus is the same as what we do in terms of our heart of honoring or rebelling against God. So important. In my own life, in my own testimony, this has been so important to come to terms. I grew up knowing about Jesus, but I had never yielded my life to Jesus as Lord. And it is very important that you know that when we come to Jesus as Savior, we also have to recognize him as Lord. How we respond to him is the same as how we respond to God. Now, very interestingly, in verse 17, something throws us off here. Because Jesus goes, look at it in your Bible. If you would enter life, what does he say? Then keep the commandments. Wait a second. I thought we weren't saved by works. 
what is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus saying that the way to salvation is by obedience? <laughs> I mean, what is Jesus doing here? He's looking at a young guy who's empty and searching, and he's coming. What do I do? And he turns to the guy and he says, I'll tell you what to do. Just keep all the commandments. What is going on here? So interesting. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's not saying that salvation comes by obedience. No. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Y'all know that verse? Write down the reference. Look at it later. For by works of the law, it says, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By works of the law, nobody is going to be saved. The law brings knowledge of sin. So what is Jesus doing here in this moment? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's not showing the man how to be saved. He's showing the man that he needs to be saved. And there's a huge difference. Before we hear the good news of the gospel, we got to hear the bad news about our sinfulness. In fact, part of the good news is a recognition of the depth of our brokenness before God and our inability to do what is needed to be right with God by anything that we do. Jesus is looking at the guy and he's not, he's not by saying, keep, he, as he says, I'll tell you what to do, keep all the commandments. He's not actually saying, this is how you're going to be saved. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to bring the guy to an awareness of how desperately he needs to be saved. Because the law, like Romans 3 says, like James 1 says, um, is like a mirror. By Jesus putting the perfect law in front of you, and this was huge in my own life for bringing me to Christ, and not just before Christ. Those of us who are saved, part of why I read the Bible every day, part of why I ask you to do the same, part of why we don't skip over those sections of the Old Testament that feel like law after law after law, you know what I'm talking about? The reason we don't overlook those things, even in our lives as believers, is because we need to constantly be focused upon the holiness of God, the perfection of his heart and of his character, the perfection of his desire and his designs. We need constant awareness of who God really is, what he really wants. And as we come face to face with who he is, just like looking in a mirror when we've had a bad hair night the night before, right? We get up and we look into the mirror and we go, oh, junk, I look terrible. <laughs> the law helps us to see who we actually are. As we see who God is and what God desires, we also come into focus of, of who we are and our deep need for salvation. The young man doesn't quite get it, doesn't quite see his need yet, because in verse 18, he, he says to him, oh, well, which ones? He's like, okay, let's give it a shot. 
Uh, tell me which commandments you're talking about. Now, what he doesn't understand is we don't get to pick and choose what commandments constitute obedience. We got a world today, friends, that takes the Bible and we pick some commandments that we like to follow, like we like to love justice and mercy and to do good for our neighbors. We do not like to listen to God's commandments about many other areas of life that step on our toes. And this guy is thinking, okay, this is an all-you-can-eat buffet. Can you tell me what it looks like to pick and choose, you know, the ones that are gonna, I'm going to need to keep, and I'll try to keep those for salvation. <laughs> James 2.10, he doesn't recognize that verse. He says, Forever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. It's not enough to keep the commandments that you like and to disobey the ones or to ignore the ones that you don't. All of God's word is authoritative. All of it speaks truth of who he is and what he desires. And for us to not keep one renders us guilty of not keeping it all. Well, Jesus continues to engage him. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus continues to engage him, and in verse 18, he says, Jesus said, and okay, you shall not murder. He's going back to the Ten Commandments, right? Most of all of us know the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The young man should have thought about all these commandments, <laughs> thought about the true heart behind them, but obviously he doesn't exactly understand because in verse 20 he says, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? He, he obviously, remember as we were studying earlier in Matthew, and we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus says, no, 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 it's not just about adultery See, this is about your heart. Like, if you lust after another woman, then you're guilty of adultery. This is not just about murder. See, if you have anger or hatred in your heart toward another person, then you're guilty of murder. This is a not, Jesus is not after our external performance. He's after the internal attitudes of our heart. Holiness is not a matter of behavior, although it does include behavior, but true holiness is a matter of the heart. And, and Jesus is engaging with him, and Jesus knows, oh, poor guy, you know, here he is thinking about the Ten Commandments and the one that's listed out, and he's going, okay, I, I'm good with all these. Hey, I'm, I'm cool, check, check, check. And how many times in my life, I can't even tell you the number of times in my life when I was empty and searching that I would justify myself in self-righteousness by looking at big moral commandments and thinking, nah, pat yourself on the back. Pat yourself on the back. You know, you might never give to the poor, but at least you're not, you know, wasting money on hookers. You might not, you might be looking at pornography, but at least you're not sleeping around. 
you might be X, Y, or Z, but at least you're not. And everybody in this room, I guarantee you, has done this thing where you defend yourself and you justify yourself and you make excuses and you think, well, I've checked this. I attend church or I do this or I don't do this. And we begin in this path of self-righteousness to try to justify ourselves in front of the living God by the record of our do's and our don'ts. And this is exactly where this guy is. But Jesus knows the issue is not one of this guy's checklist of his moral behavior. The issue is the issue of a surrendered heart. And so Jesus takes it to the next level. Oh no, he, I know you did it, Jesus. Oh no. But he does. Verse 21. Oh man. Can't believe it. He's going here. In verse 21, what do we read? Jesus said to him, after the guy says, what do I still lack? What is it that's left? Jesus looks at him and says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come come follow me Jesus loves this guy in so many ways I relate to this guy I remember I remember dealing with Jesus as I sat in settings just like you're sitting in today Jesus loves this guy and he loves you. And as you ask the question, if, you're really, if you really want to be courageous enough to ask the question, Jesus, what would it look like for me to have a relationship with you? Or maybe if you're already saved, what would it look like for me to take the next step in growth towards you? Are you really, you really want to ask that question? Do you really? Careful. You really want to know? What is it that I still lack? What would it look like to, to follow you more wholeheartedly? And for some of us who are still seeking what it would look like even to begin a relationship with Jesus, what is it? What would it look like? And Jesus looks at the guy and he goes, okay, I'll tell you. I want you to go and sell everything you have. I want you to sell everything you have and I want you to give it away. And then you can come follow me. Now, is Jesus saying that salvation is earned by giving your stuff away to the poor? Is this a universal mandate? Is he saying it is absolutely impossible to have money and to have him? It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we earn salvation by giving stuff away. It's not what he's saying. But what he knows about this man is that for this guy, the one area of his heart that he loves the most is toward what he possesses. He, Jesus, is calling out his idol. And he's saying, you want to know what stands in the way? What stands in the way is that for you to follow me, it requires you to love me with your whole heart. For you to be done 
with finding satisfaction, finding security, finding purpose in something else. You've got to give all of it up, and you've got to give your whole heart and life to me. And you've got to find me the most valuable of all. I've got to become your treasure. You know what stands in the way is your money. <laughs> and for some of us, yeah, it is our money. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 6 describes that. It is hard. It is hard. Many people have walked away from the faith because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. A love for money does keep some people away. Loving money more than Christ, yeah, that's a big deal. But for others of us, it may not be money. It may be what is it for you? What are you scared that I might name this morning? <laughs> what is it that you know, that you know God's wrestling with you with? You know it stands in the way of relationship with Him, full surrender. What is it that stands in the way of a full surrender to God? What, what is it? And whatever it is, that is where Jesus goes. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. That's where, that's where Jesus goes. He goes straight to that place because what he knows is that you can't love both God and money. You can't have two masters. And for whatever it is that we struggle with, we can't have two masters. We can't just pretend that we can continue in our sin and our life as we want it to be with the Jesus fire insurance over here on the side. No, if Jesus is not going to be our Savior and our Lord, then he's not going to be anything to us. Jesus demands and desires he deserves for all who follow him to love him supremely. What does it look like? What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your might. To love him supremely. Nothing, nothing else standing, standing in the way. In verse 22, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, we read that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So sad. But I know what this is like because I, I literally, guys, I grew up in the church my whole season of rebellion against God, I was going to church week after week after week. I know what it's like to hear a message like this and to be able to identify for Jesus by the Holy Spirit's conviction to identify the place in my heart that he wants me to release control so that I could really have intimate fellowship and joy in him and to resist. I know what that's like. To hear the invitation to true joy and peace, but to think for some reason that I just can't let go because this is what I know. This is what has made me, given me satisfaction or that momentary pleasure or whatever it is for so long and to walk away 
sad, still clinging to the one thing that if I had just let go, <laughs> could have ushered in joy, true joy and peace. But this guy walks away sad, clinging to what he has. It's like, imagine, I've heard the illustration before, being out in the middle of the ocean, right? And you get caught in a terrible storm, and you get thrown overboard off of the boat, and you've got a piece of furniture or something like Rose and Jack and Titanic, right? You're just, you're just, <laughs> you're just clinging on to dear life with this little piece of furniture, but it's not going to last. And the, and the rescue boat comes and calls out, hey, hey, let me get you. But in order for you to grab on to the life preserver that the rescuer is throwing out, you've got to be willing to let go of what you're currently holding on to. And for some of us, that step of faith for us may look like feeling like we can't let go of that thing. that we, this, is, this is what I've been on. Even though it will lead to your sure death, you feel more comfortable because that's what you know. But you need to believe Jesus that what he offers is infinitely greater than anything you're still holding on to. He is the true rescuer. And if you would just reach out and take hold of what he offers to you, he can not only save your soul, but give you satisfaction now and forevermore, far greater than you've ever known in any sin that you would still hold on to. But yet this guy walks away sad. He's going to find out soon that you can't, there's a reason you don't have U-Hauls behind hearses, okay? The stuff that he's holding on to is not going to last. But what Jesus offered to him would have last. Now, the story closes with Jesus saying to his disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is not some gate in Jerusalem, despite all of the cute little illustrations about the camel needing to go through the gate on his knees. That is a, that is a made-up thing. There's no such gate like that, okay? What he's saying is he's being funny. Can you imagine a camel going through the eye of a needle? That's funny. You guys don't find that funny. <laughs> it's daylight saving Sunday. You didn't get enough sleep. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, here it goes, here's the question. They were greatly astonished and they said, well, who then can be saved? In other words, my goodness, if this kind of guy can't be saved, how is it then? Who is it then that can be saved? I don't quite understand it. You're saying this is impossible? Oh, how is it then? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. In other words, this is not something that we, it's a, not a work that we can do. This is a work that only God can do. But let me tell you, with God, this is possible. And not just this, but all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. What is possible? Changing the heart of one who loves money. To love Jesus more. Changing the heart 
of those of us here in this room who are currently enslaved in something else and it's keeping us from full surrender, greater joy and intimacy with God. How is it possible for us to release of what we've been holding on to and to receive what Jesus offers? I'll tell you how it's possible and how the only way it's possible. We gotta get desperate and cry out for the working of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts and lives that we can't do for ourselves. We have to be desperate, friends. I, I don't, I'm communicating to you out of my own testimony here. I, I don't know how else to describe to you the life that I have today. I don't even know how else to describe to you how I woke up this morning and showed up here other than it is a testimony of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God in my life, doing something in me that I can't do for myself. Left to my own, I would not love and follow Jesus with all of my heart. I would be stuck and enslaved in sin, left to my own. But praise God, we're not left to our own. We have the rescuing power of God available, if you believe. And, and we, whether it's for the first time or for the 10,000th time, we have to live every day on our knees Praying that God would awaken our hearts by his mercy and grace to the beauty and the treasure and the wonder of Jesus. We have to pray, oh Jesus, would you help me to see and to believe that you are truly life. You are true satisfaction. You are true joy. You are true peace. You offer to me what nothing and no one will ever offer to me. You are life. Oh, Jesus, would you make me see and believe so that I could love you with my all? And what we can experience in our lives is not something that's explainable by the choices or the workings of men. It's only explainable by the powerful working and the merciful grace of our great God. It is possible. It is possible. The rest of the passage goes on to describe how some of this needs to be worked out. And this week in your small groups, I hope you'll have time to dive more into what Jesus teaches. But there at the end of chapter 19, he says, anyone, you need to know, anyone and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, you might think right now that you're giving up something for greater surrender and intimacy with Jesus. But friend, you're not giving up, you're gaining. <laughs> you're, you're investing. You're you're. Don't think about it as, oh my goodness, I have to give up X, Y, Z. No, don't think about what he's calling you to give up, although you've got to count the cost. Jesus is asking you to think about what you are gaining. You are gaining true life. As we close this morning, I just want to ask, you know, uh, where, where are you in your heart? I, I, it's, it's been a while since I've 
been as directly what we call evangelistic as I am being right now, but I know that there are people here in this room who have done the church thing for a long time And yet, in your heart, you're still empty and searching. Satisfaction doesn't come in a relationship with a church. Satisfaction comes in a relationship with a Savior, and his name is Jesus. I know that it is possible to resist what we can identify is our barrier to full surrender to Jesus, to resist letting go so that we can be fully surrendered to Jesus. And I know that it is possible week after week, potentially for you to walk away feeling sad. And I just want to invite you today, if, listen friends, there is, don't focus on what he's calling you to give up, focus on what you gain. You gain Jesus. He is everything. The stuff that we cling to in this world that we feel like it's so hard to give up, whether this is the first time you're entering in a relationship with God or whether this is some, a daily struggle and some lingering sin in your life as a Christian, those things that we feel like are difficult to give up, to move into that next place of surrender and intimacy with God, listen, those things will not last. They just won't, and they pale. They pale in comparison to the immeasurable joy and satisfaction and worth that we find in Jesus. As our band comes to respond, I just remind you of Jeremiah the prophet. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, that my people, that my people have forsaken fountains of living water and have made for themselves broken cisterns which do not even satisfy in other words, how crazy is it that somehow in our thinking that a, a, a human relationship or some sexual activity or some career path or some area where we just don't want to agree with God, that and we want it just according to our thinking, we want to be our own authority, whatever these areas are that we're holding on to, how crazy is it? that we have forsaken fountains of living water to hold on to these things which can never satisfy. Be shocked, God says, that my people are like this. But at the same time, friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to rescue our broken hearts. And you might think, it is impossible for me to turn back to the fountain of the living water. But friends, it is not <laughs> possible in what you do, but it's not possible for what God can do in you. And today, you need to know that this is why Jesus came in love. He looks at us as we're entrapped and ensnared in all kinds of things that keep us from Jesus, and he invites us to give it up, to yield our all, to love him supremely, and to find in him the fountains of living water that can truly satisfy our soul. I am so thankful that God rescued my broken and wayward heart. I'm so thankful that he does it still on a daily basis. And what I can tell you is I know he can do it for you. I know he can. So right now, I'm just asking everybody to get in a position of prayer. And I just am asking you 
to be willing to ask that question, what is it, Jesus, that I still lack? What area of my heart and of my life right now needs to be surrendered? For those who are willing to ask, what area right now needs to be surrendered? And as Jesus, by the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives, identifies those places and calls it out, I pray, I pray that you will say, Jesus, I surrender. I want to love you supremely. And I want to receive from you the fountains of living water that you can pour into my soul. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for being powerful to do in me what I can't do for myself. Thank you that by your work and your life, your death for forgiveness of my sins, Jesus, that right now if I confess that you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse me of unrighteousness. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And thank you by your powerful resurrection from the dead that right now there is nothing, no sin stronghold that is more powerful than your power if I believe. So Jesus, I'm believing you today. I'm surrendering and I'm loving you with my whole heart and life. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your love and for your grace. Pour in the fountain of living, living water into my soul so that I could be restored and refreshed and renewed in you, Jesus. Life is found in you. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.